You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 66. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. This week, in our Your Stock Our Take segment, we take a look at Polaris Infrastructure Inc., symbol PIF on the TSX. The company is engaged in the operation, acquisition, and development of renewable energy products projects in Latin America. Currently, the company operates a 72-megawatt geothermal project located in Nicaragua and a 5-megawatt run-of-river project in Peru. A listener asks us what we thought of the company's recent first quarter financials and if the stock offers value at its present level. We have two stars for you this week, both from our active client-only coverage. Our first star of the week is Zynex Inc., symbol ZYXI on the NASDAQ, which operates currently in one primary business segment, medical devices, which include electrotherapy and pain management products. The stock is up an astonishing 155% in 2019 alone. Our second star should be no stranger to Keystone clients. The company is our longest-running recommendation and the best-performing stock on the entire Toronto Stock Exchange over the past decade. The Boyd Group Income Fund, symbol BYD.UN on the TSX. Boyd released record first quarter numbers this week that smashed expectations, and the stock has jumped another $12 to $14 on the week. I'd like to get right into the show. First off, I'm going to welcome my co-host, Keystone's Senior VP and Senior Analyst, Mr. Aaron Dunn. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Ryan. Uh, still a little bit exhausted from our whirlwind tour of, of Canada. Yes. I'm doing DIY investment conferences, but uh, but I'm, I'm doing well. It's nice to, nice to get that behind us and get back into the research. Yeah, for sure. Nine cities in three weeks. Uh, I'd like to thank all of the, uh, all the people who attended the events. Uh, I remind you too, for our clients, we'll be recording them and posting them for all current clients. Others can purchase the seminars online, but it was great to get into all of those cities and see, you know, packed rooms and, and talk to some really great people and, uh, you know, just really get out there and show them how we believe you can construct a simple growth and dividend stock portfolio to beat the market's long term, what stocks to buy, what stocks to avoid, and how many stocks to put in your portfolio and you know, over what period of time to build that portfolio. All key elements to your DIY portfolio. I think we tried to express them this time succinctly and then also give them recommendations on individual companies that they can start off that portfolio with to to start building your portfolio yes exactly and you know one thing that i love about the diy conferences is that uh we we don't have a lot of time 
we basically have three hours to to communicate a very important message, and so we really have to we really have to focus on just the the very key points of intelligent investing and portfolio building. And one thing that you mentioned there, Ryan, is that it's it's not just about what stocks to buy, but maybe even more importantly, it's about what stocks to avoid. Like just giving people good rules that they can apply, good tools that that any investor can apply to avoiding unnecessary risk. And I, I think that that's one of the, the big benefits. And then, of course, on top of that, we're also highlighting companies uh, that we think are good investment opportunities and um, discussing how we approach analyzing those stocks. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was it was good fun. Like Aaron said, it's exhausting, but it's, uh, you know, it's great to be back in the office, but it is good to get out there. I mean, we met with current clients too, as well. It's good to you know, put uh, a face to a voice. Sometimes we talk to them online a lot or on the telephone, but it's great to actually see people in person. Now, there was a couple of items and news that came out in the markets this past week that we wanted to look at, just some quick notes. Uh, the U.S. government on Friday approved the formation of a new Silicon Valley-based stock exchange, follow, which had, fought, had come under some criticism earlier or late last year. It's backed by um, top Silicon Valley figures such as venture capitalist Mark Andreessen, it's called going to be known as the long-term stock exchange and born out of concern from the nation's tech elite who are frustrated by the public market's focus on near-term profit. There wasn't a ton of details really in the release, so we can't really dig into it a ton, but there was a couple key points, Aaron, I think you noted those, that this, stock exchange, this exchange was going to try to be a little bit different some, from some other uh, exchanges out there. Do you want to get into that? Yeah, for sure. So there's, there's four key points, four, four um, key differences um, that, they, that they would implement in their stock exchange. They would differentiate it from um, you know, your typical conventional exchange like the NASDAQ or the NYSE. Um, so one of those is really the focus is to try and create a more long-term mindset for investors, and and we we believe in theory. I mean, I think that that's 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 great practice in theory. Um, of course, it all comes down to execution. So, uh, one of the one of the differences, one of the things that they're implementing is that they would actually scale voting rights um, with the duration of time that an investor has owned the stock. So, for instance, if you're one of the earlier investors, if you've owned a company for several years, um, your uh, per share voting rights would be higher than somebody who just bought those those shares, you know, a couple of months ago. Um, another another uh, another point that they would want to implement, which is something that I I think has some potential, is uh, uh, d- reducing the emphasis on comp- on management compensation when it comes to short term performance. So essentially, there's different ways you can you can uh, compensate your management team outside of just their salary. Um, you compensate them for the long term performance of the company as well as the short term performance. So they would essentially try and uh, remove some of those short term motivators and focus on more long term uh, performance drivers. Um, a third point was that they actually would not allow guidance. And I thought that this was very interesting. Um, they they would allow long term guidance, but essentially nothing shorter than a year. They want to they want to have the focus to be on performance uh, greater than one year. So no quarterly guidance, no um, same year guidance, which is is 
interesting. I, I can't say that I would really be on board with that. I think that the the idea of, you know, promoting more of a long-term outlook, long-term guidance is great in theory, but, you know, it's very difficult for any company to, to determine what they're going to be able to do in two to three years. There's just, there's so many unknowns. So they talked about, about having a, um, a segment of the financial disclosure that would focus on the long-term growth drivers of the company. And uh, I would, I would assume that this would mean that they wouldn't be giving specific earnings or, or revenue guidance. Uh, myself, if the company is able to give that information, I don't see why they, they should not be able to provide it to investors. Uh, and then finally, and this is something that was a little less difficult to understand, but they, they were looking at changing the corporate governance um, from a structure whereby uh, you know the shareholders and management team were the main uh, main parties involved in determining like in, in voting on issues and you know determining um, corporate governance um, uh, procedures and, and standards and they would extend that to other stakeholders of the company so for example employees or or other stakeholders and just to give an example like uber they would say that uber drivers should have a say um, and have a vote um, or with uh, Airbnb, um, that Airbnb hosts would have a say or have a vote. So I think that the the overall idea of having an exchange that is less focused on on short term performance is great because I think that investors are far too focused on the short term um, and they lose sight of the long term. But it's the implementation of that that I think is going to get tricky. And with all of these four things, I, I mean, I can see scenarios where well the the intentions are good where they could actually have an adverse effect on yeah. on the the shareholder return no i agree I, I mean that's a great summary there but the, like well intended in terms of uh you know the thought and the idea behind the exchange but there can be some unintended consequences and i think you already talked about that um got giving guidance greater than a year out uh, we find from management teams is difficult at the best of times. Um, so, I mean, how valuable that guidance would be, uh, it, it may be minimal value in it. Uh, so if you're going to give that guidance and it has minimum value, I'm not sure what's the point of it. And if you have the ability to give short-term guidance, I don't see the real negative in giving it. Uh, the, the other, the, the dual share type structure or anything like that, generally we don't like. It gives voting control to the few from the many. I, I don't like those structures generally. And I mean, when you have a, you know, the initial founders having more of a stake or the initial shareholders having more power, um, it, it just creates that type of structure. So maybe well intended, but the unintended consequences uh um, really have to be looked at when they're structuring this exchange. I, it'll be interesting to watch how it proceeds. It'll be interesting. And of yeah, course, there's sure. other things that like in terms of management compensation, I support there uh, being yeah, more of a long-term element, but you also have to, to, to consider the reality that when you're providing a, uh, an employment package to a to a top manager to a top executive, then they're going to compare that if, to to what other options they have, and if yeah. it takes ten years for their options to vest in company A and three years in company B, then that's just going to be an advantage for company B. But interesting to see how it turns out. I, yeah, I think I mean, that the underlying the the objective is 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 solid. Of course, yeah, yeah, and and again, the unintended consequences there are you may go to the shorter term compensation, and then they are able to attract less optimal management. So, I mean, those would be uh, some of the unintended consequences because you always have competition out there for that management. 
Now, the, the other thing, it was a tweet via Twitter that we saw. It was returns over the last 11 years on some of the biggest exchanges in the world. Uh, topping that list, not really surprising, uh, over the last 11 years. It's kind of cherry-picking a date going to 11 years, but... It's a, the U.S. was a the market was up 151 percent. Japan just second is only over the last 11 years up 17 percent. That was Japan. So a massive difference in the returns of these major exchanges. The second place uh, country on that list was Japan, up only 17 percent. France was up 11. Korea up 10 percent. Germany up nine. This is over 11 years. The U.K. up nine percent as well. China was up just two percent. India one percent. And tying with India, there is Canada. Over the last 11 years, the exchange is up only 1%. And the laggard on that uh, was Russia, which is minus 52% over the last 11 years, the entire uh, exchange there. It was interesting to see those uh, returns and how far the U.S. outperformed the rest of the world, essentially, over the last 11 years. Well, and that's one of the things we've been saying about our, our U.S. research, and we've covered this in, in the DIY conferences, is that there's so much drama, there's so much noise um, in the United States right now, and it just seems like the, the country is in, is in complete disarray. But if you look through that noise and you just you look at the business sector, the entrepreneurial spirit that they have down there, uh, it, it, it really is unmatched. I mean, the United States has been an innovation engine over the last century, and there's no other stock exchange that has a level of diversification and the breadth of opportunities that they have down there. I mean, we've seen it um, in our research. There's just companies that you can purchase down there in, in areas like AI, uh, you know, cybersecurity, all, all sorts of different areas that, that just don't even really exist in other parts of the world, especially Canada. I mean, Canada, you know, 1%. I was a little bit suspicious of that, actually. So I decided to confirm that myself. And and the, the numbers do appear accurate. Yeah, it um, is amazing to see that. Really. Yeah. Now, you, you said that this this is kind of cherry picking a date, and it is. So this is basically cherry picking a date to um, shortly before the financial crash in, in 2008, short, shortly before the big crash. But the Canadian market um, hit a hit a peak in, in 2008 of just about 15,000 points. And then it crashed, and then it, it slowly started coming back up again. Well, it's only about 16,400 and change right now. So we're not that far above our peak. And it wasn't until 2014 that we passed that 2008 peak. Um, and and these, are in, these are just in nominal dollars, too. If you actually um, considered inflation, uh, then we would still be below the peak, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but um, it's when you look at how the Canadian stock market is broken down. I mean, uh, resources and financials, about 55% of the market. Technology, such an important sector, almost non-existent at 5%. I mean, on an on a overall market basis, we have a lot of issues up here, and it's, it's, it's not an attractive uh, diversification. Yeah, we, and we went, we went through a lot of that in our DIY seminars, and we, we did a whole seminar on how you know, Canadian investors have to look to the U.S., and we've been talking about that for two, three years. I mean, we talked about that for longer, but even in the seminars, just that long. Um, you know, and we always get the question, and yes, it is a valid one, being concerned about the currency uh, you're buying in Canadian dollars and you're buying U.S. Uh, US assets, uh, having the currency exposure there. But, I mean, this shows you over the last 11 years, you know, you just if you would have bought the exchange essentially in the U.S., you'd be up 151%. In Canada, you'd be up 1%. 
Uh, if there was even a 20% negative swing in terms of the currency, you'd be far better buying the U.S. exchange uh, and, and the U.S. companies because of the better returns down there. And that's why we see the breadth of companies down there. And we stress you need to have involvement with that uh, segment in the U.S. Or uh, just the market in the U.S. just to give us exposure to those type of companies. So we're going to move on to the meat of the show. We're going to go into your stock, our take. A question comes in, Aaron's going to handle this. It's on Polaris Infrastructure Inc., symbol PIF on the TSX. They recently issued their financials. The question says, can you give me your comments on the results, whether stock is good value at present? Is there growth um, uh, in the new Run of River project coming online anytime soon? This is from Will E., not Willie, Will E. via email. Thank you, Will E. Aaron, I'm going to let you do that. Take that. It's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. Sure, great, Ryan. So Polaris Infrastructure, this is a company we followed for a while, um, trading at about $12.40 right now, uh, and it yields about 6.5%. So we've had several questions from our clients about the company. It's definitely been a cash flow business. Um, They're a geothermal power producer primarily in uh, Nicaragua. So their main asset is the San Jacinto project, which is located in northwest Nicaragua. It has a capacity of 72 megawatts. Um, So this has until recently actually been their only producing asset. And that that has been a major concern to us is just that country risk. And Nicaragua has been fraught with social unrest recently over the past couple of years. And that's generated, that's created a lot of volatility in the in the share price of Polaris. Now, it hasn't affected their their cash flow or their, their asset yet. But of course, whenever you have a situation, a country risk like that that is so precarious, investors are always cautious, especially when that's where your only asset is located. But they, they've recently taken steps to diversify the business. And this is something that we, we definitely like to see. It makes us more interested. So on October 30th, they announced the acquisition of a Union Energy Group, uh, which owns and develops run-of-river power projects in Peru. So these are generally smaller projects. Uh, but what the acquisition came with was a, a single 5-megawatt project uh, that is producing right now, and two late-stage projects, uh, which is uh, El Carmen and um, Ocho de Agosto. Um, and in total, these two late-stage projects uh, are combined to to 28 megawatts of power and the company Polaris is expecting that they're going to be commissioned and producing this year in the third and fourth quarters of this year so so that's good uh, the the acquisition adds about about uh, 33 megawatts of of power outside of Nicaragua where they have their their 72 megawatt plant there so that does provide some good diversification um Looking at the recent financial results, they've been very strong. So they put out their first quarter on May 6th. Average production was uh, 64 megawatts compared to 54 megawatts in the previous year. Their revenue was up 26% to $18.6 million. Uh, adjusted EBITDA up uh, nearly 29% to $15.9 million. And they had strong earnings growth, um, $0.21 cents per share in earnings compared to $0.03 cents in the previous year. So... Very good results, and they have demonstrated that they can produce growth just out of their San Jacinto project alone. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, what happens once they add the um, those other two projects as well. But 
Uh, good, good valuation trading at about 13.5 times earnings, um, about six times enterprise value to, to EBITDA. And the, the balance sheet has improved recently as well. So we, we don't see them as being over leveraged. My, my overall assessment is that uh, it's still a higher risk country. Um, based on the the, the existing uh, concentration in Nicaragua, uh, until we actually see those projects in Purdue, Peru produce as they're expected, we don't want to put too much uh, too much weight on that. But I do think it is an interesting story. It pays a nice yield. It's growing. It generates cash flow. They're doing a lot of the right things. So higher risk, um, but definitely an interesting story. That's a great summary. Thank you very much. We're going to move quickly to our star number one of the week, our first star of the week. And again, this should be no stranger to uh, Keystone's clients as it's been a recommendation for the past 18 months. From our stars and dogs segment, it's time for this week's star. star. Zynex Inc. is the company ZYXI on the NASDAQ. This is an a- excellent example of the type of discovery research we provide our clients in the U.S. market. This company was discovered just in late 2017, December 2017, in the 275 to $3 range when we recommended it. Uh, it was traded on the OTCQX at that point. It has since graduated to the NASDAQ, which is what we like to see. The share price is currently around $7.38, market cap $238 million roughly. Now, the star performance here, the stock is up 45% in the past month, uh, 8% just this week. Uh, the stock is up 155% year to date. Now, what does Zynex do? They operate one primary business segment, the medical device market, which includes electrotherapy and pain management. Now, uh, we don't want you to picture the late night TV program with Dr. Ho, where the patients have this strange pulsating pad on their shoulders. These are doctor prescribed pain management and rehab devices used often as replacements for highly addictive opiates. What is driving the stock? Well, on April 30th, the company released Q1 earnings, which surpassed market expectations, and the stock is up 35% since that point. Revenues were up 34% uh, to $9.2 million, and net income was up 22% to $2.4 million from $1.9 million in the same period last year. Zynex has been a massive performer over the last six months, year to date, and most of the recent earnings release, um, the re- earnings release has continued that momentum. The company's revenue, net income, both had strong growth uh, since we first recommended it in the first quarter of 2018, right at the end of 2017. And the company's balance sheet is very liquid with a net cash position without much debt. Uh, They have already issued solid guidance for growth in the next quarter. Uh, Revenues to be up over 28% to between 9.5 to 10 million. EBITDA in the range of 2.3 to 2.8 million. And earnings per share around 7 cents. The company has some cost increases in the near term, bringing on some of its new sales reps, but that is an investment for future growth. Now, the financial growth and the big share price gains make Zynex one of our stars of the week. And for our U.S. clients, it has definitely been the star of the year so far. Just a great example uh, of how you can find an underfollowed, unknown company. I mean, nobody was really 
talking about Zionx or covering Zionx when we first recommended it, it traded on the OTC, but we liked it because it had the cash flow, the growth, uh, cash-rich balance sheet, and now it's it's just this year upgraded to the Nasdaq, and that's that's been a great move for the company and for the shareholders. Yeah, yeah for sure. And then there's it trades on the OTCQX, uh, the OTC bulletin board. There's roughly ten thousand stocks there that probably we wouldn't touch with a ten foot pole, most of them. But the QX is roughly equivalent in terms of disclosure to the TSX Venture in Canada. So. We can dig in and review those companies. There's uh, about 450 on that. We go through that twice a year. Zynex was one of maybe two companies that made our criteria, and it graduated to the NASDAQ, and uh, you know it was performing well and continued to perform well, and growth seems to actually be accelerating right now, and uh, that's why you're seeing the share price gains. So that type of discovery research, you can find a company that can be mispriced with absolutely no coverage on it at that point. We can provide that coverage at, a, at an institutional grade level and uh, you know provide some excellent returns for our clients long term. From our Stars and Dogs segment, it's time for this week's Star. star, star, star. Now the, the next star, the second star, star number two this week is the Boyd Group Income Fund, BYD.UN on the TSX. Uh, the current Share price around uh, $163. Market cap is $3.2 billion. Uh, for long-term clients, they know we actually recommended this company when it had a market cap sub $20 million when its shares traded at $2.30 just over 10 years ago. It has paid us $3.75 plus in dividends for a total return of over 7,000% now. But what makes it the star this week? Uh, it's up 10% in the last month. Shares jumped about 8 or 10% this week alone. And they're up again, another 50% from the start of 2019. So what does the company do and what is driving that? Let's get into that. First off, the business is very simple. Boyd is one of the largest operators of non-franchised collision repair centers in North America. In terms of locations and sales, the company currently operates locations in five Canadian provinces under the trade name Boyd Automotive and Glass and Assure Automotive, as well as 20, it operates in 27 states in the U.S. under the name Gerber Collision and Glass. On May 15th this week, the company released its first quarter results that easily beat expectations, leading to the jump in the price we witnessed on Wednesday. This is a continuation of what occurred when the company released its Q4 results, which led to a similar 9% jump in its share price. The results themselves, revenues were up 23% to $557.9 million. Net income was up 17% to $21.4 million. And adjusted EBITDA was up 29% to $54.2 million. Boyd continues to execute on its growth plan. During 2019, the company has added 51 locations while at the same time achieving organic growth through same-store sales in the fourth quarter of 5.3%, which is impressive. If we adjust for one less selling production day in the U.S., same-store sales would have been 6.6% on a per-day basis in the quarter. That is solid organic growth. Now, Boyd has been the best performing stock on the TSX over the past 10 years with an and has been an absolute home run for our clients, once again, hitting new highs this week. With strong growth, both in terms of same-store sales as well as the addition of new locations, 
and strong revenue and earnings growth, Boyd continues to show solid promise. Promise. The current valuations and price does reflect this, but it is tough to bet against Boyd's team. The massive share price appreciation over the last couple days and over the course of this uh, year to date and over the past 10 years makes it our star of the week. Well, you know, one thing I found uh, really interesting, amazing about Boyd is that, you know, with all the growth that they've generated over the past 10 years, you have to ask yourself, well, how much space is there really left to consolidate the auto body repair industry in North America? Uh, they have um, 600 and some odd uh, locations right now across North America. Well, they identify that there are 32,000 shops in North America that could be potential acquisitions. So, I mean, that just gives you an idea of how much space there is. And Boyd is the one of the largest uh, players in the space and the only publicly traded company. So that just that just goes to show that there is there is more space to grow. Yeah, there's significant runway for the company still ahead of it, which is nice to see. Well, that's going to do it this week. I'd like to thank Aaron for co-hosting with me again this week. Um, again, I encourage you to keep your questions coming for our Your Stock, Our Take segments. Uh, tweet us, uh, send us on Twitter, send us a tweet or email us or through any of the social media channels you can get us and we'll answer or endeavor to answer your questions uh, every week here. Uh, again, I can remind you that our DIY segment or seminars will be available to current clients by the end of this week, and uh, we'll post those up for purchase for those who weren't able to attend in person uh, by early next week. Thank you very much, and I wish you out there all profitable investing. Profitable investing. <laughs>